Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in to our toolkit series where we're taking a deep dive each month into a single topic, recapping the basics, but also focusing in on frequently asked questions and judgmental areas. Today, we're continuing our focus on income taxes, and this week, it's all about scope. Having a process in place to really make sure you understand what the features of a tax law are in order to figure out its proper geography in the financial statements, I just, I don't think you can stress that enough. It's important for the tax and accounting functions to be communicating. It's important to be coordinating early and often. My returning guests today are Jen Spang and Matt McCann, PwC National Office Partners. They're going to take us through some of the main focus areas that often give rise to questions when we're considering the scope of the income tax guidance. There's a lot to cover, so let's get started. Jen, Matt, welcome back. More in our tax toolkit, this time talking about the scope of 740 and a few other related considerations and pitfalls. But Matt, I thought before we got into that, one of the key things I think often comes up is if people hear the word tax, whether it's property tax, um, excise tax, any tax, they think, oh, ASC 740. But obviously that's not the case. So can you explain to us when ASC 740 uh, applies. Yeah, and first, first I'd start off just saying, you know, it's a it's a pretty fundamental accounting question. You know, the answer of whether you're in scope or not that's going to dictate a whole host of things, including financial statement presentation. You know, particularly the geography on the on the income statement, whether something's recorded pre-tax above the line or or below the line. And depending on what standard you're in, there may be different disclosure requirements. But probably most most important are that there's different accounting models for recognition and measurement depending on what standard applies. So I'll give you a, I'll give you an example. If you're evaluating uncertainties, then under ASC 740, there's a specific model that's generally based on a more likely than not threshold. But if you're not in 740 and you're looking at uncertainty related to a non-income tax item that Uncertainty would typically follow the loss contingency model under ASC 450. 450 has a a different recognition threshold than accounting for uncertain tax positions for for an income tax. All right. I think that's definitely a key reminder, Matt, and I'm glad you went into that before we jumped straight into my question. So with that background and sort of that understanding of why this is so important, then can so you can you kind of help us remember the definition of an income tax? Yeah, sure. That's that's a good question. You know, mostly because income tax it's not really defined clearly within ASC 740, which is is surprising to a lot of people. You would you would think that would be the case, but 740 tells us that we should account for the tax consequences of revenues, expenses, gains or losses that are included in taxable income. So taxes that are based on income or taxes that are based on a net concept where revenues are reduced by one or more categories of expenses. And you can't always go by the name of the tax, which a lot of times can be misleading, you know, just because tax is in the name of something that 
doesn't mean it's subject to ASC 740. You have to look at the, the details of the tax. So, for example, take a, take a gross receipts tax. So generally, if a tax is, is based on gross receipts, that's going to be outside the scope of the income tax accounting standard. There's no, there's no net of expenses. But even then, sometimes there's modified gross receipts taxes, which include a reduction for certain expenses. So even though it might be called a gross receipts tax, if revenues are reduced by some type or amount of expense, then it may qualify as an income tax and therefore be subject to the accounting requirements of ASC 740. So Matt, I think that's a great reminder of two things about accounting. One is that you really have to understand the details of what you're accounting for, and you have to understand the details of the accounting guidance. And I think that's obvious, but I think your example is great that you can't just say, oh, it's a gross receipts tax. I know what to do with that. So thank you. So then I think definitely those clarifications that are helpful. So then Jen, maybe going to you, would you say it's fair to say that all income taxes are subject to the accounting and reporting requirements of ASC 740? So I would say yes, kind of. Um, <laughs> Great. <laughs> Way to be definitive. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's fair to say all income taxes are within ASC 740, but sometimes you get into a question of there may be a tax and you need to understand who does that tax apply to? Because depending upon the answer to that question, it may get accounted for differently. So, um, you know, when I think about whose tax is it, where that comes up a lot, let's think about like the legal entity, the legal form of an entity. So is it a flow through entity, like a partnership or something like that? What I'd say is ASC 740 applies to not just all income taxes, but it would apply to any entity that's subject to an income tax. But where I think the challenge can come, you know, there are some taxes, as um, Matt mentioned, that you get into debates, it may not be black and white that it is just on revenue, for example. Um, so it's a little bit unclear on whether it's an income tax. And then you can get into the entity level um, where you you sort of have to figure out the same kind of thing, like what is the tax? And one of the ones that we've seen more recently is the pass-through entity taxes. So after um, TCJA, so back in late 2017, a number of states instituted, um, in, in many cases, an optional tax on a partnership. So a partnership can elect into becoming a taxpayer, essentially. And so with these pass-through entity taxes, the question becomes, is that really a tax on the partnership? Or is it really effectively a tax on the owners? And each of the states that have these taxes have instituted them slightly differently. And so you really need to understand the difference in that. The effect essentially is that these, um, these pass-through entity taxes uh, allow there to be a reduction on a federal basis of the tax of, I should say, the income, because you get a deduction at the partnership level. So it reduces the amount of income that's flowing to the owners. But the pass-through entity tax, right, that's a state, it's essentially allowing you to get a state tax, a state tax, a deduction for your state taxes. Whew, try to say that five times. <laughs> 
So my point there is just um, you're you're needing to understand what is the nature of the tax. You also need to understand who's the tax on. Yeah, maybe maybe I can jump in real quick with one uh, one last point on some of the other things you need to think about when partnerships or other flow through entities are involved. So if a if a corporation has an investment in a partnership, even though the partnership itself might not be taxed the investor or the corporate owner may need to report taxes related to the difference between the book basis and the tax basis of its investment in the partnership, what we refer to as the the outside basis difference. And partnerships often don't have deferred taxes on what we call inside basis differences, you know, what you might see for various accruals or fixed assets because the partnership itself isn't usually subject to an income tax. It's the owners of the partnership that are subject to tax on the operations of the partnership. But if there's a partnership somewhere within the corporate structure, there might be corporate taxes that need to be recorded associated with the investment in the partnership. You also have to think about whether there may be uncertain tax positions associated with the income flowing up through that partnership that the corporate owner may have to assess under the uncertain tax position guidance in ASC 740 and potentially record a liability for an unrecognized tax benefit as a result of flow-through income from the partnership to the corporation. All right. So a key takeaway for me from all of that is if you're dealing with partnerships, definitely need to make sure you understand all the details of, of what you're dealing with there. So definitely some good reminders. All right. So then, Jen, let me go back actually to something you just talked about related to pass-through entities. So I feel like this is similar to a conversation we've had about withholding taxes. So can you kind of share some similarities and differences? Yeah, I, I think it's a great connection, Heather, because withholding taxes is yet another question of whose tax is it in order to figure out if you're accounting for it on the tax line or not. And so um, 740 actually provides a little bit of guidance, but more on the um, payor side. So um, let me let me explain what I mean here. So you oftentimes will have a withholding tax that the entity that's paying, let's say, uh, making a distribution, maybe paying a dividend, they will actually be required under their jurisdiction to withhold a tax um, and remit it to the authorities. And then they'll send up the net cash to uh, as part of their, let's say, dividend or distribution. 740 addresses this fact pattern and basically says that if a couple of conditions are met, that is not an income tax on the payor. So so important here, right? So the person that that um, distributed the cash, what 740 says is, hey, look, if that is not a tax that um, is due except um, as you make that distribution, and it will not reduce your taxes in the future, meaning it's not part of your tax liability to the government for your business, and the receiver of the payment will get a tax credit, then that is not your tax. So said a different way, that becomes like an equity transaction between you and your parent company that you're making that distribution to. Contrast that though, in the eyes of the recipient, that absolutely might be an income tax. So here, the first step I just want to point out is that 
just because you had a legal obligation under that jurisdiction to cut that check to the authority. Mm -hmm. But if it's in effect, not your tax, it's really you're withholding it on behalf of somebody else, even though the government makes you, that may not be an income tax on your tax line. But for that, going back now to the entity that received the payment and actually um, was, in fact, legally obligated to that tax that somebody else paid on their behalf, um, that may well be an income tax. Now on withholding taxes, this is now you've, um, you've moved out of the guidance in 740 and you need to now go back to the whole analysis that Matt started us with on is it an income tax for that entity? Now you're looking at withholding taxes. You're often having language like, is it in lieu of? So meaning, had I had a physical presence in that jurisdiction and filed a tax return, would this be you know, considered as part of my payment? There's no black and white. You have to really get in and look at whether or not it's an income tax. And it will, it will vary. Um, you know, I think this is an area that requires some special attention. All right. Definitely a lot to think about there. And I think, again, the key is really making sure you understand all of the elements of the transactions that you're talking about, or you're going to get it wrong on one of the entities involved, it sounds like. (laughs) All right. So then let me ask another question going back to you, Matt. I know one of the things that often comes up when we're thinking about scope are tax credits. And again, from the name, it just sounds intuitively, it's tax credit you know, this should be part of my ASC 740. I know that governments often use these as a tool to incentivize certain behavior and um, regular listeners know I'm from the power and utilities industry. So a great example there would be lots of tax credits around uh, building renewable power going back many, many years. So Matt, is there an easy answer here? Are tax credits always in the scope of 740? They are not. Yeah, we gotta, we gotta go through, uh, Similar analysis, you know, compared to what we've been been talking about, but that that is a good way to think about a tax credit. It is it is often an in- incentive from the government, and a lot of times tax incentives are legislated or administered through the tax code. But that doesn't automatically mean that they're accounted for under 740. So there's a couple key things that you need to you need to consider. You have to evaluate and answer a couple a couple of key questions, and the first one would be can you get the benefit for the credit through some method other than through the income tax return? You also want to want to address is the tax credit or other benefit, you know, they aren't always called credits, is it is it refundable? Is it able to be sold or otherwise monetized without the existence of taxable income? So if the answer is yes to either, it's outside the scope of, of income taxes. Otherwise, it, it is generally within the scope. All right. So Matt, let me clarify one point or ask a question because you mentioned um, getting the benefit through some method other than through the income tax return. So then are you saying that if it is, if you do get it through the income tax return, that it's automatically part of uh, 740? No, I, I wouldn't say it's it's automatic. If If you have to take it through the return to get the benefit, but if it also involves the requirement is you have to have taxable income in order to get the benefit of it, then it would be subject to 740. If, if there's no taxable income requirement, even if you have to run it through the tax the tax return, then you, you may be out of 740. 
All right. I think that's really helpful. And I mentioned earlier this long history of renewable credits. And I know some of the newer ones, we keep hearing about new ones because there is a lot of incentive, obviously, right now to invest in clean energy. Often those could be refundable, or I think maybe more importantly for my question, the company could have different options for how to monetize. And my question is, how does that fit into this analysis? And so to give you more specifics, I know I've seen situations where a client would receive a credit, but maybe they didn't really owe taxes every year. So we sort of talked about that. But there's different options. You can either use a little bit every year, you can sell it to someone else, maybe sometimes you can there's other different methods. How does that fit in into determining whether or not it's in the scope of 740? Yeah, if you do have uh, options, one, one of the things you want to think about is, is whether there's a significant disincentive to monetizing the credit outside of the income tax return. Yeah, that could point to the credit being in the scope of, of income taxes. But facts are going to be really important here. Small differences between one credit and another could mean completely different different accounting. But again, the, the general rule is that if you can monetize the credit outside the tax return and with or without taxable income, including if you have a choice as, as to how to monetize, that doesn't involve taking the credit through the tax return, then generally the credit should be accounted for outside of 740. Now, in U.S. GAAP, there's not any explicit government assistance guidance that's applicable to for-profit business entities. So if you're outside of 740, a lot of companies look by analogy to an IFRS standard on government grants, IAS 20. And the last the last point I'd make here, there are some new disclosures that are required for the various types of government assistance that aren't specifically in the scope of U.S. GAAP. So business entities will need to provide information about the nature of the transaction, including significant terms and conditions, as well as the amounts and specific financial statement line items affected by the transaction. And this new guidance is effective now for all entities with annual reporting periods beginning after December 15th, 2021. All right. Those are good reminders. And I think, Matt, again, probably the lesson from that is make sure you understand all the nuances of the tax credit because that could drive different accounting based on sort of the examples you just ran through. Right. All right. So we've hit, I think, most of the highlights in terms of definition of taxes, impact to legal form and structure, withholding taxes, tax credits, other benefits. Uh, so we've hit a lot. But Jen, any other points you think we should cover in terms of thinking about the scope of the income tax guidance? I maybe would put just one more out there um, just because it's been a topic of a lot of conversation. It's not so much in the scope, but you know, the standard itself, the accounting standard hasn't changed a lot. And, you know, we've had some developments. So for example, compared to FAS 109, FIN, FIN 48, which deals with UTPs is quote unquote newer, right? Um, but we haven't had a lot of changes, but there have been a lot of changes in the tax law. And so I think these, the whole discussion that we've had, I just would come back full circle and just say, as we see these developments around the world, around new tax law or the introduction of new tax laws, 
analyzing whether or not it's within scope becomes important. And the one that comes to mind is the digital services tax. So we've seen that introduced in Europe, but frankly, we've also seen it in the United States from a state level. And so in many cases, those digital service taxes are made such that they are just a tax on revenue. But I can't help but emphasize that, you know, slight movements in sort of how you define those laws could move it into a different geography, meaning move it from above um, in pre-tax down to the tax line. Now, I know you and I have talked a lot about some of the um, OECD's projects, both Pillar 1 and 2. So Pillar 1 kind of dealing with those reallocation of profits. Um, and then pillar to a global minimum tax. But those are just other examples of laws that need to be just monitored on a regular basis to figure out whether they are in scope on the tax line or not. All right. And Jen, to your point about OECD, to the extent our listeners haven't listened to that podcast, which we put out, I guess, about a month ago or a little more, we'll put um, a link in the show notes because definitely if you are not paying attention to OECD, you want to be listening to that. So Matt, Jen, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you. Any final or key takeaways for listeners? And maybe Jen, for this one, I'll go to you first. So Heather, my key takeaway goes back to what I just mentioned. And it's just having a process in place to really make sure you understand what um, what the features of a tax law are in order to figure out its proper geography in the financial statements. I just, I don't think you can stress that enough. And the important part about that is having a process to monitor all of these changes that are happening around the world at multiple levels. So I, that would be my key takeaway. Definitely a good reminder. How about Matt, from your perspective? Yeah, I think I'd also add that it's important for the tax and accounting functions to be communicating. And when you think about what we talked about related to various credits and incentives and what might be coming down the road, you know, if the credits are not on the tax line, then there's different models, disclosure, recognition, just a whole host of, of other considerations. So it's important to be coordinating early and often. All right. And I think that is a reminder that we could probably apply to every single one of uh, the podcasts in this series. So both as always such a pleasure, as I said, before I let you go, though, I have my two very, very fun stump the guest questions. Um, these ones deal a little bit with sports and the history of tax accounting. So starting first with the history of tax accounting. There was a tax standard issued by the FASB before FAS 109 that was very quickly superseded. Do you remember which standard oh, that was? I was going to say... Go ahead. I was going to go FAS 96. All right. So you guys are one for one. Let's see if we can make it two for two. And this one I can give a hint if needed. What famous race takes place on the second Saturday of May in the USA every year? Easy one. Go for it, Matt. The Kentucky Derby. Yes, two for two. I was going to say it's a horse race if, if needed, <laughs> but that might have been too much of a giveaway. So, all right. Well, you guys are definitely getting better at your trivia. So um, <laughs> thanks for that. And as I said, thanks for all the insight. Thanks, Heather. You're welcome. That's our show for today. Join me this Thursday as we continue our discussion of ESG reporting with a look at investor perspectives. And next Tuesday, we'll, we're back with another episode in our tax toolkit series. So that you never miss any of our audio content, 
Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all of our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.